Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Carl Hassel. Last name is spelled H-A-S-S-E-L-L. We spoke back in April of 2022. Really great episode. I'll put a link to it. The title of that episode was The Strange Tale of Spies, Lies, and the Peyote Way Church of God. A really interesting story about American psychedelics and some strange travelers and odd people with intelligence guys um, in the western part of the U.S. But today we're going to talk, and he's kind of been—he's a listener, definitely a listener of my show. He knows a lot more about the '60s, lived through the '60s, and the Grateful Dead stuff—stuff stuff that I don't know that much about. So he kind of reached out to me and said, "Hey, do you want to go over this?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely." So he sent me some pictures. I have them as slides. So you can see this live on Rockfin, William Ramsey Investigates, and uh, check that out. But Carl Hassel, welcome back to the show. Thank you, William. <clears throat> I, I, I hope some of the attachments come out, too, with those festivals and things. Um, Absolutely. And I, you said at the pre-show you wanted to read a quote. Yes. So if you want to do that, please do it now. Okay. Um, everything I say on these shows is only my opinion. I don't think for people, and I don't tell people what to do. What I say is based on my experience with my life. The entire 1960s launch of the counterculture was and is a psyop that inducted all into the ancient religion spoken of by Crawley. That do as thou wilt mission was spoken of by Leary, who considered himself to be carrying on Crawley's work. Crawley was paid homage to by the Doors, Ozzy, the Beatles, and others. The movement was represented by the Scarab Beetle of Egypt and overseen by Pan. I have collected many dozens of images so far showing the Beatle advertising bands, albums, band logos, concert posters, and comics. Included here are very few examples. I will use 1967 as the year of the official kickoff based on a rear handbill passed out on Haight Street as the Dead's first album was released, as well as the busy major concert scheduling that appeared suddenly all over the Bay Area in 1967 where LSD saturated the entire scene and the country for the rest of history. The San Francisco Bay Area bands led the charge and were willing and or unwilling agents of massive change that still affect all in the world today. If time allows, uh, we can talk about the personifying of many specific songs by Deadheads and other grammar that really isn't covered by other people doing the Grateful Dead. Okay, I'm all yours. Great. I mean... So that's really it. So really, the 60s really was a change environment in so many ways, culture, bands, everything like that. How specifically do you think the the Grateful Dead was involved in that, in that change? I think most of them were willing. Uh, we know Phil Lesh was from a Masonic dynasty. We know about the military intelligence connections and three members coming out of the Air Force within two years of each other. Of course, Owsley, you know, um, Jerry's Jerry's military record is something, it's all over the web, but what people aren't doing is showing most of it. I went through seven different links the other day to prepare for this show, and what they're not telling you on Jerry's military record, you know, the lore is he joined the Army and they threw him out because he is a goof-up. Well, in reality, he was a gung-ho G.I. Joe soldier, square away, and uh, he had a... Interesting. He had a minimum. He had a he had a medium. I'm sorry. He had a medium security clearance, and was an expert carbine marksman. Even though he was missing his middle finger, 
And somewhere about uh, about a year in, all of a sudden he started clean, stopped cleaning his nails and stopped taking a bath. And he was com- his hygiene was completely disgusting, even though they piled on extra duty and uh, extra chores. He still would have none of it. And they released him on an honorable. Well, his story really reflects what happened to Wavy Gravy and Jimi Hendrix and Emmanuel Trujillo. They all joined the military, were in for a very short amount of time, and they got out with a discharge under mysterious circumstances and then became major countercultural heroes. A lot of similarities there. But Jerry's army record, a lot of people don't realize this, but another researcher named Steve Ostrom got a FOIA request back in 2016, and he put it all up on the web, and it completely contradicts what is on the web now and what people believe. Um, Interesting. I know Steve. I've done a show with Steve. Yeah, he's great. He's, he's a real good guy. Um, great researcher. Uh, you, you, you might want to lead this. I do have a 100-degree fever right now, so lead the way, William. Well, I'm just, you know, just talk about these. So these guys have a military. It's like the weird scenes. They've got a military background. They have short careers, but then yes. very long careers in the counterculture, right? Like yes. these guys, 40 years, 50 years. The Trujillo, who we talked about last time, was like a lifelong member of the counterculture with very strange ties. But the dead kind of have strange ties, too, right? Like this first picture here. Oh, yeah. Mickey. Okay. Yeah. This is Bob Weir and John Barlow. Now, they've known each other since at least 1962. This picture comes from the Fountain Valley Academy in Colorado. It was an elite bad boy school where uh, elite families would send their troubled boys and that's where they met. They were lifelong friends. And John Barlow wrote the lyrics to all the songs Bob Weir did. He didn't phone anything in and do one or two. These guys were partners. And Weir lived with Barlow on his ranch in Wyoming. And, you know, they went on songwriting binges. And, of course, John Barlow came from a multi-generational Mormon right-wing family. And at one time he worked on Cheney's campaign and then left oh. when he figured, when he, when he figured uh, Cheney was a world-class psychopath. You could read all about John Barlow in his book, Mother American Night. It's a great book telling the tale. But him and we have known each other since 62. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, and so he was he was famous. He's already passed away, right? He died in, yes, in just a couple of years ago. But he was super influential. And where do you think he got his inspiration and uh, lyrical uh, background? Like, where, where do you think he got that? Like, people say that there's a lot of occultism and... Things like I don't, that. In, in I don't know about that, but I know psychedelics can sure brighten up your lyrics. You know, so uh, I'm sure a lot of psychedelics came to it. I'm not going to claim that he had anything to do with the occult. Now, Robert Hunter is another guy. He wrote all of the lyrics to Jerry Garcia's tunes. And they've known each other since about 62 when they were homeless, living in their cars in Palo Alto. And Robert Hunter comes, he was pretty much a lifetime Scientologist. Now, he has some incredible lyrical imagery and he, both Weir and Jerry songs are some of the best loved by the dead. And the lyrical imagery is just incredible. Um, so you got Robert Hunter and Bob, Robert Hunter and John Barlow, who were both homeless, you know, consequently with Weir, with uh, Garcia and they wrote all these tunes. I'm a mess today. Oh my God. That's all right. I mean, so they wrote this tune. So they had two kind of working collaborations, right? Yes, so Hunter and Hunter. Garcia, Barlow. And Barlow. Yes, and it, it's Weir. like Jagger Richards, you know, and right. Lennon McCartney. It's the same kind of deal. And so, 
they got together. Were they all so like the the dead was really kind of a huge de, uh, uh, collaborative band, right? With just many people putting information into it. They pretty much had a set set of members until Pigpen died. And TC was only in the band for about a year or so, right after he got out of the Air Force, Tom Constantin. So they pretty much had a set lineup until Jerry passed, too, and then things fell apart, and then they reformed, and there's been several offshoot bands. Right. And so where did they go? Like, I mean, they were definitely change agents, right? Do you think that – I mean, I know I've heard that their manager or somebody around them was uh, – had some kind of intel background. Right? You're talking about Hank Harrison. Hank Harrison. Okay, talk about Hank Harrison. He just well, passed away too, right? The manager before Hank Harrison was John John Warnecke. The manager oh. before him was John Warnecke, and he was a good pal of the band and did their early gigs. And John Warnecke's father did most of the architecture in D.C. and the buildings at Stanford University and he developed John F. Kennedy's Eternal Flame. Now, I talked yeah. to John a couple times in Belmont before he passed away. He was a very sad man, but nobody seems to find him when they're doing Grateful Dead research, and he was their first damn manager. And then, of course, Hank Harrison got into the picture. Hank doesn't like me at all. Uh, he, he blocked me, and he told me, I, I don't have to answer your questions because you're not a published author. I got a little too close asking him some stuff about his second Grateful Dead book. Uh, yeah, he's, you know, plenty has been said about Hank. <laughs> yeah, I think he first... passed away last year, but I mean, uh, the the father of Courtney Love, right? Yes, and... yes. But what was his kind of impact on the dead? He basically was Phil's best buddy. He, uh, he, he hung with Phil Lesh a lot. And in the book, it's not there anymore, but he talks about Phil Lesh walking 10 blocks to get a hot meal one day through the rain. See his second book. It's called The Dead. It's got a flying eyeball on it. That mm -hmm. book was that book was edited and stuff was taken out. Entire chapters were taken out and chunks of chapters. The forward was the dedication and forward was missing, and a lot yeah. of pictures were taken out. And Hank gave me a really jumbled answer on why that happened. And then I started asking him pointed questions, and that's when he blew up on me. Interesting. I mean, but he was with the band for a long period of time, right? He's with the Dead. Yeah, he kind of, yeah, yes. I think he was kind of back scene. You didn't see him. He kept out of, he kept in the shadows. Interesting. But he was there very, at the beginning, right? With, uh, oh, yeah. the, when they were the warlocks and all that. Yes. Stuff. Hank Harrison formed uh, LSD Rescue in 1966 on Haight Street. There was kind of a talk down the hippies that were flipping out thing. Now, I was 10 years old in 67. So, you know, but I was, I bit that Paisley pipe dream, man. I was all for what was happening. I thought that was the way to go. Wasted a lot of years. Interesting. And so, so he's there. So what, what do you think? I mean, do you think that the, the Garcia and Weir were definitely involved in uh, culture change? Like they wanted to Im implement this or were they being puppeteered? Oh, yes. I think I think they wanted the culture change and they were welcoming it because, you know, we were just coming out of the Eisenhower years and Kennedy was killed. Um, if one finds the book called The Golden Road, the Book of the Deadheads in the foreword, it talked Jerry Garcia wrote the foreword and he talks about answering an ad calling all. I don't have it with me. I sent it back east, but 
calling all people uh, to engage in wild adventures and musical whatnot. If you got the book, go look at the forward. You know, I'm not going to try to recall it. Here Interesting. Like so, is that a song and a book? Is that the case? No, it's just a book. It's called the Golden. Oh, it's Road. a Golden Rule by John Kilbride. It's uh no, the Golden Road, the Book of the Deadheads. Oh, the Book of the Deadheads. Sorry. Yes. Now, the Golden Road is a song on their first album, but I, we were only speaking about the book here. Right. I'm trying to find it on Amazon right now. I just see one called The Golden Road. It's got a red history. Yeah, no, got a red cover with like a skeleton hand holding a globe or some shit. I don't want to get tied up in that. Gotcha. <laughs> so, so what else? I mean... You sent me a lot of links, and you sent me all of these slides. Do you want to start going through the slides? Sure. Yes, please. So so this is Barlow and Weir back on their preppy 50s Yep, that's days, 1962. Right? Here, we have, here we have Bob Weir and Mickey Hart at the Bohemian Grove. They're members. They've been members. Uh, a lot of consternation over that with deadheads. I also included a clip of Bob Weir giving a very lame reason why he's part of the bohemian grove i i hope your fans can link to that because it really All right, let me see if i there. let me see if i can pull it up let's see share screen do you want to listen to it yeah sure it's only three minutes okay, okay let's do it all right well we'll do uh we'll do one more i had uh from farther further um <laughs> what insights can you share with us about your performance at the Bohemian Grove. Well, <laughs> I don't talk much about the Bohemian Grove because, you know, it's it's a place that people go to get away from from the spotlight. You know, a lot of a lot of relatively uh, well-known guys are members of that club. But basically, it was founded. Uh, 130 years ago or so uh, by artists and writers, for artists and writers. And still, in order to get in, you have to have something to offer in that, in that, in that regard. A lot of, a lot of the members are, uh, you know, successful entrepreneurs or businessmen of one sort or another, but they, they all have an artistic bent. Um, the stuff you hear about it in the rumor mill is while entertaining, I've never caught any virginal sacrifices. <laughs> um, anything kind of remotely like that. We have some interesting times up there. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of movers and shakers in that club. And I enjoy the, uh, I enjoy the chance, given my, my, my mindset, my Velschmerz, if you will, uh, I enjoy a chance to to get to get together with those guys and knock a couple back and uh, and talk it down. I one time I uh, spent a weekend up there um, ran into a guy named uh, General Bill Quinn, and we had a couple drinks together. We were sitting in front of the fireplace, and we just started telling we we. We fell, fell in together. We started telling, you know, war stories. He was the guy that uh, Herman Goering uh, sur surrendered, not his sword, but his, basically it was a mace. He surrendered his, but he, uh, he, sought, uh, he sought out Bill Quinn 
uh, well, Bill Quinn, who is also the, uh, the original um, original head of the OSS, which became the CIA, was a very, very interesting guy. And we just went back and forth. We had a crowd of people um, gathered around us of all kinds. And we, we, about late afternoon, we'd go uh, to the deck where the fireplace was, sit down, get, grab a couple of drinks, and just start going back and forth. That kind of stuff, you know, these, these kinds of meetings and stuff like that are only going to happen there. Or, you know, that's it's the only place where you can almost be assured of, where I can almost be assured of that, of meeting folks like this. Uh, so it's a it's a great opportunity for me. It's also a great club. There's a there's a there's a sort of a, a an unwritten but a, a hard and fast rule for uh, membership: uh, no jerks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they have an, an entrance committee that, uh, that that they can stiff them out. <laughs> well, Bob, those are those are great insights, and I always appreciate it. I always appreciate how much you share of yourself with Headcount. Uh, this is really an amazing night. I, I hope people out there are really enjoying it. Uh, we're having a great time here, and uh, if you are enjoying this webcast, I am going to make the pitch again. That was it. So that's it, right? And then you have this one. This is kind of a famous one by uh, Leary talking about Crowley here. Well, I've been an admirer of Aleister Crowley. I think that uh, I'm carrying on much of the work that uh, he started uh, over 100 years ago, and I think the 60s themselves. You know, Crowley said uh, um, he was in favor of, uh, of uh, finding your own self and, and uh, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law under love. It was a very powerful statement. I'm sorry he's around now to appreciate the glories that he started. Well, there you go. Um, William? Yes. I needed to add something real quick about Alan Trist in those early days. Okay. Alan Trist was Jerry Garcia's good friend, and they were in a car accident together in 1962. Alan Trist is the son of Eric Trist, who is a co-founder of Tavistock. Oh, wow. Yes. And I, I supplied all the links, but I just wanted to get that in verbally. And Alexander Shulgin, also known as Sasha, the psychedelic chemist, Yes. He belonged to the Bohemian Grove for 50 years and played violin there. And he used to piss people off because he insisted on wearing sandals or barefoot. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. And he's right there in the Bay Area, right? He, I think he yeah. was on the East Bay or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he, he lived in the Berkeley Hills. He just passed on recently, too. I've got some pictures. I think I already shared to you of him. Uh, and he up. was networked. There's all kinds of guys. He Up until his later days, I mean, I don't know if he was making dope or what, but he was people made a pilgrimage to his place to visit with him and talk with him and stuff like that, right? Yes. Yeah. Him and his wife, his wife was very fond of cactus and, uh, well, I don't want to sidetrack. Yeah. So, uh, Alan Trist, Tavistock, known Jerry since but, 1961. But it's all psychedelics, right? So the psychedelia yes. of the dead and Shulgin all kind of play together in that culture, right? Yes. And don't forget the merry pranksters. And the uh, Hell's Angels, they all worked hand in hand. The Angels moved grams and grams and grams of LSD during the late 60s and early 70s until that whole scene fell apart about 74 or so. But um, there, it's all one. That's why I keep telling people it's all connected. It's like my mantra. 
you have a lot of crossover. A lot of deadheads belong to the Rainbow family. A lot of Rainbow family are fuck are uh, pranksters. There's kids that are moms of pranksters, and their dads were Hell's Angels. Everybody knows about Peyote Way. It's all one big psychedelic circus and dope exchange. Yeah, and right, don't so, change. <laughs> right, so it's a full culture, it's a subculture, the dead are a subculture. I mean, and let's get back to these slides. So here they are, they're at Bohemian Grove, that's Mickey Hart. Mickey Hart has interesting connections too, right? But yeah. this is him with Neil Cassidy, so you see all these names. This is Bob Weir. Right. This is Bob Weir holding, obviously it's pretty recent, he's an old guy here. And I wonder if this is a, a, a signal. You know, why is he holding an acid test poster? Right. <laughs> I don't know. You can see the eye. You can see all this symbolism and stuff like that. There yeah, that, that's a reprint and an enlargement of the original acid test poster from the 60s. And here we have uh, Dead and Company, the newest incarnation of the band. And they're they've been pushing for total access to birth control for the last couple of years. And there you go. There's a little citation. Interesting. So you got the female, the fist, the skull. Here we got we got Bob Weir and Mickey Hart again telling you to vote, and then the signal down here for abortion, female rights. Right. There's Bobby again oh, with the shirt. Yeah, the there's, the, shirt. there's the lightning bolt, right? Good old yeah. And this came from the movie. This came from the 1977 movie. It, it got, a lot of the stuff goes by fast. You have to really play it in slow motion to catch everything. <laughs> and if you, right, if you, you see listen the, to it, yeah. you can hear the you can hear the flames. You can hear the thing burning. It's really cool audio. Right. <laughs> Interesting. And there, so you got the eye in the triangle and the torch, right? The yep. torch. And, and what happens? Yeah. The, the Statue of Liberty actually falls out of the frame. So that's right. what you're seeing there. That's what's left. Interesting. And then this is the kind of like. Uh, there's the name Promethean and Trip. Yeah, this is an old poster. It, it, the posters, it looks like they're going to be out of order, but it doesn't matter. Here we see a dung beetle rolling the world. That is a beetle rolling a ball. Right. And isn't so the dung beetle is venerated in ancient in Egypt. Egypt because yeah. of, they thought it was immortality, right? Or something. Yep. Like they considered it good luck. <laughs> right. Yeah, look at our results of society today. You tell me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, society's gone so far down. Um, yeah, so they thought it was some kind of spiritual thing. But the dead had all the imagery. The beetle, the sphinx. Yep, the there's an anabus in here, the wing disc, everything. Yeah. Now, this post, this was a handbill, William. This was handed out on Hate Street as a handbill at the same time the album was coming out. And I couldn't find it anymore, but there is information out there that claims Peggy Hitchcock of Hitchcock Mellon fame paid for the first album. Wow. That would be remarkable. So that would be a tie directly between Leary Absolutely. and the dead. Yes. Because wow. he was at, what was the place they were at? Uh, the Hitchcock. Yeah, Millbrook. Millbrook. Yeah, Millbrook. Good memory. So that the ship of the sun is driven by the great, the great yeah. In the land of the dark, the ship of the sun. There you go. Wow. Here we have another beetle. Um, I hope that you show the verification I got validating that about the beetle. Here we have a metal beetle that's advertising Iron Butterfly. Right. In the Fillmore, right? So it's all San Francisco as well. Yeah. 
And I think like uh, you didn't include it in the art, but I think a lot of that artwork is very similar on Journey too, which is a San Francisco. Yes. It's the same artist. It's a guy named Rick Griffin. Okay. And sense. there's a Dun Beetle doing his thing. <laughs> right. Here's another Egyptian imagery. What was it? It's a Sphinx dance. I can't even read this shit anymore. I got to be tripping to read it. I swear to God. <laughs> Do you recall, like, the when we kind of talked about so, uh, the magical powerhouse of Oz and uh, yeah, Bobby so, Boussoulet? They were around in that time, too, right? It's yeah, Bobby Boussoulet, Cupid. He actually, his band opened for the dead a couple of times. I, I think that. it was called Ark. I, I couldn't find it under no, the name right. you gave me. But uh, yeah, but the Powerhouse of Oz. You can still see the band's artwork is around on the internet. Oh, I remember Ark before that. Yeah, online. Yeah, Bobby, Bobby opened for the Dead a couple of times. I didn't know that. Wow, that's interesting. Here He's we have a, like a 1985 or 87 Grateful Dead advertisement. You got the Sphinx. Yeah. They really like the Egyptian imagery and the and the. Uh, Stuff like that. Yeah, the magic. The Sphinx, re Sphinx represents to know, to will, to dare, and be silent. Yeah, and this guy's smoking a joint. And here we have the Egypt shows. My first show was in October 88, 78. I, I saw them right after they came back from Egypt. It was October 22, 1978, my first show. And I hated it. I did not like it at all. So they literally went to Egypt to play, huh? Yeah, they did three nights there. I didn't know that. And here we have Pan overseeing the Monterey Pop Festival. There's the god Pan above the stage there. Oh, wow. Interesting. And here we have the old Jefferson Airplane with more Egyptian symbolism. Yep. It's all around that time, too, right? 77. Oh, yeah. They, they love doing That's, this stuff. Yeah, 67. Sorry. And here's Ray Manzarek from The Doors. He had an album called The Golden Scarab, and there were several pictures, but I think I only included this one. And he even wrote a poem about the golden scarab that's included with the disc. Huh. They're all into it, man. They're all into this Egyptian shit. Then uh, here we go. That was the logo for Monterey. Well, pan, right? And then here we see the Jimi Hendrix experience again with a dung beetle. Yep, there it is. Dick Griffin, there it is. Yep. Yeah. It's all there. San Francisco Psychedelic 107 Market Street. Yeah, wow. And here's Zap Comics from 1969. You see a beetle running out. And there's fucking there, excuse me. It looks like Hebrew writing here, some kind of weird writing, but you got the one-eye symbolism and you got a dung beetle coming up into the daylight. Right. No, it's definitely Hebrew. And here's a more, more dung beetle. There we go. Yeah. There we go. There's my citation for my monologue. Yep. Scare beetle was considered holy. And who are the rhythm devils? That's Billy Christman and Mickey Hart. They're known as the rhythm devils, the dead's drummers. I didn't know that. Yeah. They are known as the rhythm devils. And, uh, Billy Kurtzman met Aldous Huxley when he was 13 years old, and Aldous suggested he play the drums. Interesting. And, so and that, that, is in, that is in Bill Kurtzman's autobiography. I'm not, that's on, I'm not talking through my hat. Wow. Yeah, it's right there in his bio, actually. Yep. 
No, yeah, there you go. The rhythm doll. See, I didn't know all this stuff. They did the Awkward music to uh, Apocalypse Now. That crazy river music. That's that was an album and a disc. So when oh, you watch yeah, if you watch Apocalypse Now, that's the Dead Strummers doing all that bizarre music. Wow, I didn't know that either. There's a Steve Miller band with the Scarab Beetle. You know what's here's this is Dead and Company again. I managed to catch a flash of that there with the eyeball watching everybody. Interesting. That's the end of the slides. Wow, that's something else. I didn't oh, know that I they had all these more in there. I should have put I have almost five dozen total. I was doing more last night. Well, anyway, you know, um, where do we want to go now? Let's see. There's Kreutzmann right here. Yeah, it oh, says right here. Yeah. Yep. Yep. As he was practicing drums alone in the large building at his high school in Aldous Huxley, and another man walked in. I wanted to add some grammar to Kesey, too, if I could. Sure, go ahead. Um, a lot of everybody talks about Ken Kesey and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but he actually wrote two books, and they were both made into a movie. The other book was called Sometimes a Great Notion, and it was about a multi generational logging family trying to hold off the big guys. So, you know, if you're going to talk about Kesey, get some more grammar in there. <laughs> and, of course, we know Ken Kesey had a Ford Fellowship scholarship, which was a CIA conduit recruiting. But, yeah, he, he did what, books. He had a what, what scholarship? It was a Ford Fellowship. Oh, Ford's Ford Foundation Scholarship or something? Yes, yes. Oh, I see. So he did write two books, and they both became movies. And I, I like sometimes a great notion. I actually like it better than Cuckoo's Nest, but I'm a weirdo. Interesting. I've never even heard of that. So it was adapted, Paul, directed by Paul Newman, starred alongside Henry Fonda, nominated for two Oscars. Interesting. It's a good movie. I thought it was better in Cuckoo's Nest myself. But didn't read the book, though. I did not read the book. <laughs> so what other kind of uh, unknown things about the dead are there? I mean, other than these guys' connections, Bohemian Grove. Okay, um... Most of the Dead's early catalog, and still their current catalog, came from the Harry Smith music catalog. Harry Smith was a guy who ran around with a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder recording Appalachian hillbilly folk music, and then he put it into a large volume. It's called the Harry Smith catalog, and many Grateful Dead tunes came out of that. Now, I heard somebody mention Casey Jones a couple of shows back. Well, Casey Jones actually comes from the 1920s. And then it was a hit in the 1950s for a group called the String Alongs. And a lot of the Grateful Dead stuff. Let's see. I know you, Ryder, going down the road. Uh, Fenario. Oh, baby, it ain't no lie. All kind, there's probably a dozen and a half songs that the Dead did. And they, it was electrified Appalachian music. And they, some of their best loved songs came out of the Harry Smith catalog. Um, Cold rain and snow, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, you know. Well, there's your tie to Crowley right there. Harry, Harry Smith was a member of the OTO. Bingo, right on. Makes perfect sense. So Crowley uh, influences Leary, influences the Dead through Smith. I know I'd heard his name. Did we? Did you get the link about Mickey Hart and the Library of Congress? I have it somewhere. Let me see if I can find that. There's Warnicky. All this will be That's available it. for fans. This is it right here. Right? Okay. Yeah, there's Smithsonian. Is that what you're talking about? Can you see that? Yeah, yeah. Mickey Hart was put in charge of the Smithsonian Folkways project. You could read all about it here, but he's been recataloging everything. 
not only from the, the, the Smith catalog, but he's been throwing Grateful Dead stuff in there too, and Egyptian music and African drumming. You could read about it all. There's a couple different links I supplied. But uh, Mickey Howard is now running in <laughs> a big shot at the Library of Congress. There we go. Yeah, there I, he is with Patrick Leahy. Leahy is a huge Dead fan, right? Yeah. So was um, so was uh, what's the Ohio Senator Metzenbaum? So was Howard Metzenbaum. His whole family were Deadheads. I knew them. They were massive deadheads. And Metzenbaum would call in once in a while to get tickets to shows for his nephew and his niece. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Leahy looks pretty straight-laced, but apparently he walks around with deadhead kind of uh, swag or whatever, clothes and stuff like that. Which probably means he's a garbage head. He's done some drugs. <laughs> right? Yeah, probably safe it's to assume. The, yeah. I was never Dude, The tie to Harry Smith is something else. That's yeah, a whole other show. It's wild. Yeah, man. he claimed to be like he was. He was brought up somewhere an orphan. He claimed to be a an orphan of Aleister Crowley, but he knew all that, all the all those rituals and stuff like that. He was wow. he was connected to the occult underground. I didn't know that about Smith. Yeah, but he was friends with some of the early um, artists there. I think Kerouac or one of these guys too. Hmm. Like I think he kind of yeah he influenced Dylan, Baez, and Garcia. Because they all uh, learned it from the Folkways Anthology of American Folk Music. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers, and Frank Zappa all had two drummers for their career. And this brings us back to Aldous Huxley in the book, The Devils of Loudoun, where he talks mm -hmm. about how to make a perfectly sane, civilized person a howling beast with drum patterns and flashing lights. Wow. I would strongly resent uh, it's on the archives. You can find it free and go all the way back to the appendix. And that's the uh, where it really it's, you know, it's you think about him telling Chrisman to play drums. And then you look at the devils aloud and it's like, man, they're this. They knew the power of music and how it could mold and shape and change people. I strongly recommend the devils of Loudon, the, 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 the appendix. Right, but it's based on a true story. The devils of Loudon is not fiction it's it's a retelling of a guy who drove these women in the whole city insane and ended up hanging him he was in i uh, forgot it. urban grandier was his name uh, okay yeah yeah he's a real person so it was kind of like a the, the the french version of the witch trials oh okay if i can remember correctly yeah but wow i didn't know that they had harry smith wow that's incredible. Makes perfect sense. Cultism and folklore. So Mickey Hart's in there. He's doing the stuff. What's the story of Phil Lesh? Phil Lesh has held three Seder dinners to mark Passover, even though he's not Jewish. I just found that odd. You know, Why do you like, think he did that? I, I, my own opinion is when these people play, anybody, any of these people in the world, either claim to be Jewish or they start advocating Jewish. It's part of being in the crime syndicate as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you know, why? I don't want to get too far with my opinions on that, but I just found it strange that he's held three Passover dinners and he's not Jewish. I don't hold Passover dinners. Do you? No, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I'm not I've been to Passover dinners. I've been to Passover uh, why spy? Why is why spy important? John Perry Barlow is that a book? Uh, that's an article he wrote in Forbes magazine, 
he big John Perry Barlow bragged a couple of times about going to the CIA and basically teaching how to them how to use the internet more efficiently. Interesting. Yes, and that's just a short thing there. And again, I, I draw people to his book if they want more. Right, but he knew Robert Steele, who just died of supposedly. Yeah, that. yeah, wasn't that amazing that he yeah, mentioned that's a small that. world, small yeah. world. <laughs> yeah, I mean that guy has some, he had an interesting life, Steele did. So what's this? Watch Dead and Company share inspiring words message from Joan Baez, right? So there okay. they are. That's Weir, Bob Weir's in front there. Yeah, a lot of this was anti-gun. The, the Dead and Company and Phil Lesh held anti-gun rallies. And I was kicked off and blocked from the Dead and Company Facebook page because I said, instead of worrying about gun control, why don't you help the thousands of homeless drug addicts to follow you from city to city? And they wrote back and said, Carl, that's hate speech. We won't tolerate it. And I wrote back and said, but it's observable fact. There's nothing hateful about that. And they, that's it. And they pulled the plug on me. Carl. <laughs> Loudmouth getting in trouble. Let's see. Yeah, the Bill Spreutzman. It's interesting. So there's Warnicky Jr., right? So his yeah. dad, these guys all came from people who were very accomplished. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now Gore pops into this as Warnicky, right? Yeah. He's, was he friends with the dad or the son? He was friends with Al Gore and Tipper. They actually took mescaline together and smoked a lot of hash together. Interesting. John, John and I belong to the same uh, social club, and I only talked to him for probably three minutes total in three occasions. He was a very sad man. He just exuded depression. He, he was a troubled man. Oh, and his wife, his wife ran the uh, alcohol drug rehab center at one of the Peninsula area hospitals. And when she died, it really put a ripple in the community. Uh, so anyway, I'm sorry, yeah, that's too bad. Uh, but Gore is actually going to this World Economic Forum thing this month too. So. This guy, yeah, is, what a strange arc he's had. Yeah, he's a weirdo, man. <laughs> I, I know somebody who worked on his campaign, and he never, his voice didn't have an intonation. He just spoke in the same tone the whole time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he talked about his dad a lot, apparently. Like, he would, mm. when he was alone, he would my dad. We talk about his dad, like, get over uh -oh. it. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very strange. That was 2004. Um, so, I'm uh, sometimes a great notion. What's this one? Message from the Hippie Elders, the Houseboat Summit. <clears throat> that was a talk. With Allen Ginsberg, Tim Leary, uh, Watts, and they were discussing, they were admiring the Chinese social system and talking about how, you know, it'd be a good thing if it happened here. It's really an eye opener. It's over an hour long, so people do it at their will. But uh, it's like once you read it, once you listen to it, you go, what the F, man? The hell with these guys. And you can probably still see my comments from six years ago on the bottom of the page in the comments section. They're hypocrites. They're disgusting hypocrites that didn't do what they preached, and they lived a whole separate life behind the scenes. Oh, Ginsburg was a notorious. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's bad news. Yeah, you don't want to fall asleep around a guy like that. Yeah, no way. You don't want to take a drink or fall asleep. Nope, nope, nope. And Watts, yeah, Watts was interesting. Leary was uh, curious as well. But, uh, yeah. Always high. Leary just did tons of drugs. Tons of drugs. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> We are at Carl. We have made it 40 minutes. Do you want to, anything you'd like to add or anything before we wrap up or anything? 
<clears throat> Gosh, I hate being put on the spot with these shows because I have so much shit to look through. Um, there is an incredible amount of power in Grateful Dead's music, and the fans identify with it. They and just like again, just like uh, Theodore Adorno, he said you need to write music that the the listener can identify with and personalize. And there are dozens and dozens of Grateful Dead songs that people live through. They think they're talking about them. They personify the main character. Um, I won't go through any of the songs now. I'm too scattered. I think we caught most of the stuff here. In 1990, there was a mass of heroin that came into the dead scene. And there were also a lot of missing deadheads in 1990. You could look this up. But in 1990, it seemed like everybody was strung out. And I was straight by then. So I was really shocked when I was seeing it. And one person told me that it's a love offering, that Jerry's a junkie, so we're all going to be junkies. And the heroin was just, uh, there was as much heroin as there was LSD in 1990 tour. Wow, interesting. Um, it's up so they to went through a lot of drugs. I mean, the, that was, I mean, it was known that you could go to a dead show get whatever drug you wanted. You just had to ask somebody and they would go, oh, yeah, they would know where to go, right? Go to get whatever. I mean, usually it was all kinds of drugs were, you know, anything, psychedelics, the whole bit. Yeah, um, I was involved in that. I, I moved some psychedelics here and there in a pretty large volume a couple of times. But, uh, yeah, man, that's the scene. That's that's, that's what it scene. is. So they they created changed the culture. They promoted psychedelics. They had a connection to Crowley through Harry uh, Smith, right? Yes, and, and they're still pushing gun control and abortion and psychedelics. They're on the psychedelic bandwagon like Joe Rogan and all these other yo-yos. Right. So they're a part of that same uh, culture, but it's a chain of culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, one of the guys who I forgot his name, he, Moore, or, uh, Hamilton Morris, was like a, a psychonaut on Joe Rogan. Hung out with Shulgin, a lot of these guys. He knew a lot of that. So, I personally kind of don't believe these guys. I personally them? don't believe them. Uh, I've taken that? a lot of psychedelics, and I, I, you know, I don't think they've taken as much as they say they have. Mm -hmm. And I know people that don't take LSD or never had it. You really can't tell them how much you have had because they won't believe it or they think you're insane. But these guys that talk about their DMT visions, I highly doubt. I only had DMT really? once, but I didn't see any beings or crystal animals. But that's just me, like I said. Interesting. So I think they're all bullshitting, and they just want people to start taking this shit. Interesting. So you think they're just promoters of these drugs? Yes. To get not to brag about their own exploits, but to get people involved. Is that what you're saying? Yes, William. Have you ever heard a person describe a problem in their life they solved with psychedelics? No. No, never. And don't tell me Carl Sagan or Steve Jobs. You know? No, I haven't. I've heard of people do drugs and like come up with concepts. Like, what was Kit Mullins was the guy who came up with the PCR test. He said he did drugs. I mean, some of these guys think that they're getting inspiration or something from drugs. So I don't know. Right on. Yeah. Whatever. I, <laughs> I, get it. I know the dead are, you know, it's kind of like uh, the South Park skit where. You know, they're bragging about everybody being um, co-opted, but they're just totally drugged out and, you know, <laughs> drug dropped out and have their own vices, right? So they complain about, against the so-called straights or normies or whatever. 
but they do their own drugs. They got their own. <laughs> if they can have them, I already was there and did that shit. Yeah. What would you like I to hope, have working people? Okay. I hope I was coherent because I'm really Absolutely. out of mind here. With a no, I mean, I think it's interesting. You gave me a good survey overview of the dead. Like, I'm going to go look back and. I remember when I studied Crowley, I came across Harry Smith a number of times. He has a very serious occult background, but the connection between Smith and all these other artists, I think, is very interesting. So I have to go back and check that out. I always learn new elements of Crowley from other people and just different facets, you know, because I... Yeah, it seems like he's everywhere, huh? Yeah, he's everywhere, yeah. I just have to expand my book, Children of the Beast. To, you know, I've, I've got about <laughs> six, six additional chapters to write. I can find the time and inspiration. Um, Carl, where can people reach out? Do you have social media or anything? Sure, I know you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Carl Hassel4, and I'm also on Facebook. That's about it. Find you right on. Well, thanks a lot for sharing your knowledge. I really appreciate it. And again, this title is uh, Discussing the Counterculture and New Age Deception in the 60s, and particularly the dead. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you, sir. Thanks, everybody. All right. Bye-bye. Stay there. Stay there.